This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Monday, 10th of July. With me today, I'm excited to have Harris Cuppelin, a.k.a. Cuppy. Harris is founder and chief investment officer of Praetorian Capital Management. Since inception in 2019, the fund is up over 600%. Cuppy, good afternoon. Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome to London. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to be here, actually. Oh, it's lovely to see you in person. You're over to meet some investors, is that right? Yeah, yeah. We have some uh, clients here. I came by to say hi. You know, COVID, I wasn't able to meet people for a while, so... Just seemed like the right thing to do, and it's been 15 years since I've been here, so I wanted to check up on London. Oh, I'm sure it's changed a lot, actually. Yeah, sure it has. I think it's changed a lot. How about we start with what got you interested in finance, uh, a rundown of your career today, and what sparked you to start the fund, really? Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, it's going to sound crazy. I was at boarding school, and the Asian financial crisis happened, and at the time, I, I was uh, playing uh, chess against all the, the rich kids in boarding school to earn allowance money, mm-hmm. and it was pretty good. You know, I was pretty decent at it. I was making you to know, $5 a game, and I saw all these uh, guys in suits running around, and they were all losing money, and so I just assumed there was a, a guy like me somewhere in that room making all the money. <laughs> you know, all these guys like panicked, and I assumed there was just one guy taking all their money, and so I said, I'm going to be that guy when I grow up. I started uh, learning about uh, stocks, and I figured I could figure it out. Of course, I had no capital at the time, and I had no mentors, and you know, there's no one to tell a 16-year-old kid how to do it. I just read everything there was, and I was just hooked on it. I uh, opened a brokerage account, I stopped going to class in boarding school. I almost failed out of boarding school because I, I was there just watching the markets, even though I had 15-minute delayed quotes and yep. had no money at play. Um, do you remember the first stock you bought? The first thing I ever bought was a 3M. I had read some book about breakouts, yep. and it had one of those breakout things, and it was the most amazing things. I made like $100, $150 in, in like an hour, and I couldn't believe how much money I made. And, you know, the, 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 the chart book said, yeah, you're supposed to let these winners run. Yep. But I was just like, wow. You know, because I, I was working like six bucks an hour. That's like, uh, you know, a week of work in an hour. Like, I was like, this is easy. I booked it. I was so excited. And then I think I lost like 500 bucks in the next two weeks trying it again. <laughs> and then, so how did you move from boarding school then into, I guess, college and, uh, and into the, the market real? Well, so uh, I went to college and uh, in college, uh, I said, Dad, I, I've been doing this on paper for a long time. I had like a notebook with all the paper trades. And I said, give me some money. I want to trade. I want to trade for real, you know. And my, my dad uh, said, if you want some money, go get a job. Yep. And so I cleaned pools one summer and I made about 6,000 bucks. Uh, but before that, I'd been playing with just some couple hundred bucks of savings. And um, I, I just started uh, investing, trading. I, I guess you call it trading these days. Yeah. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing, but I just read everything and tried everything. And most things didn't work. Just equities or did you branch out into options? Oh, I, and I, I did some futures. I did some yeah. options. I, I just tried everything, but I couldn't figure out whatever worked. 
And then the first thing I finally realized in, in the, the fall of uh, 2020, sorry, in the fall of 2000, you had these uh, situations, these uh, venture capital internet stocks. And what happened is, let's say there's 100 million shares outstanding. The VC would do an IPO and they'd list 2 million of the shares. Yep. And they'd give the shares to the, you know, they, 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 uh, the underwriter would make sure that uh, uh, insiders bought the shares. Yes. And so the goal was the stock opens for trading at $10. I mean, it prices at $10, it opens for trading at $200, it closes the day at $400, it's in the news, everyone's talking about it, everyone's excited. Those guys peel off the shares kind of slowly to retail. And then uh, six months and a day later, uh, the VCs are allowed to sell. There's something called a yeah. lockup. Yeah. And so 98 million shares come for sale and the VC has a cost basis of a nickel and they know they're gonna crush the stock. Yeah. And they don't care because their cost basis is yeah. a nickel and they want to get out with like a $5 basis, $10 basis, because I think it's worthless. Yeah. And so they just go sell and they sell and they sell and I mean, I'm just, I guess, pattern recognition. I saw this happen a few times because there were guys in my fraternity house who got crushed. Yeah. You know, why is this stock down 30% every day in a row for a week? And then I finally realized it was the lockup. And then I just started going through the SEC filings and I built a calendar of all the lockups. And I took my $6,000 and I bet it all every single time. And by the end of the year, I had a couple hundred thousand dollars. And it was just the most amazing thing. And I, I told my dad at the end of the year, I said, Dad, you're a doctor. It took you like a decade of college to become a doctor. I'm six months into this college thing. I'm done with it. Like I made more money than you this year. Like you screwed up. You should have traded stocks. <laughs> so you were you were looking for looking for the lockup to come off, waiting for the price to fall, and then buying after the. Oh, we were shorting it. Yeah. I was shorting it like a day or two before yeah. lockup. Some of them had options, which was even better. Yeah. But I, I was shorting it. I mean, I'm lucky I didn't blow up because some of these really did squeeze. But I was using between fifty and like. 200% of our cap, um, yeah. of my capital yeah. on each one of these things. Yeah. And they just always worked. Like some of them didn't work and it squeezed 10 or 20% and it, you know, kind of sucked. But for the most part, it just, look, I, I compounded six grand into like a half million bucks yeah. in six months. Like it, it worked. And then what next? Well, I, I told my dad I want to drop out of college and he told me I'm not allowed to drop out of college. But we made a, a, an agreement that I would go to night school and uh, trade during the day and, uh, I became a Roman history major because uh, they had night school. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was fascinated by the topic, and I figured I was going to trade, so why do something useful? Yeah. And yes, there's absolutely nothing useful you can do with a Roman history major. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Unless being an archaeologist, would that help? Or, uh, yeah, but they don't get paid. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> you can work it as a professor you get somewhere. get to see a lot of mosaics and tiles, I guess. It'd be fun for a weekend, yeah. yeah. So in any case, uh, I, I just w w was just fixated on stocks and investing. I guess the second real epiphany of my life came uh, after 9-11, where there were these two uh, property REITs that owned hotels in uh, New York and in Washington, D.C., and the stocks dropped like 70 80%, and they went from making a lot of money and paying a dividend to losing globs of money because the hotels was 0% yeah. occupancy. Yeah. And I was just looking at these things, and I'm saying to myself, I know these properties. I've stayed in some of these properties. There's no way this thing could be 100 million market cap. You know, it has like a billion of debt, whatever. Yeah. But it's like, I know what these assets are. So if the company can make it through and it can uh, get peace with its lenders and not, you know, have to file for bankruptcy, it's going to be worth more. And this one company had like six hotels. It, it was subscale, shouldn't have been in public. And I just start calling the hotels up and I'm, and I'm saying, I'm, I'm looking, you know, to book for next week. 
you know, yep. what do you have available? You yeah. have to, do you have a suite available? Do you yeah. have this? I, I did it so many times. They're just like, Cuppy, stop calling me. <laughs> like, like I, I'd call the girl. The girl would be like, we have this many uh, booked. You know, this is our occupancy yeah. this yeah. week. This is next week. Just stop calling. And I'd send her flowers and chocolates. But I knew all the girls at all the yeah. hotels. I knew the ones who would pick up the phone and talk to me. And the ones who were just like, Cuppy, it's like, you don't call anymore. And... When it started, I, I did the math, and at about 40%, 50% occupancy, they, they break even. And at 60%, 70% occupancy, they make a ton of money. Yeah. And so when the forward occupancy got to 40, I just bought every yeah. share I could. Yeah, yeah. And of course, for six months, uh, you know, the stock price was just going lower and lower because the, the, the company keeps issuing press releases. You know, we're having the Seventh Amendment to our credit facility, and you know, we've blown all the covenants, and everyone's... And it, it was just odd, because you'd think other people would be doing this. Maybe they were, but... It, it, it was just so obvious that suddenly they were going to be profitable. And the next press release is like, hey, we're at break even now. The banks are off our back. And the stock was like a triple. Yeah. And I sold half. And then it like doubled or tripled again yeah. over the next year. And I made like four or five times my money. And it was just incredible because instead of, you know, betting on VCs dumping, it was a pattern yes. recognition. Yeah. This is just like using my brain. And yeah. I'm just like, oh, I can do this other thing called investing where you buy something for less than it's worth because you know that it, it, it's going to be worth more in the future. And it was real just epiphany of mine. And, you know, I've always been a super concentrated investor. There's not a lot of, you know, great ideas out there. Yeah. But I think I had like 150% of my net worth in two insolvent hotel companies. I mean, there's many times where I should have been taken out of this game because when I look back on it, like, I took way too much risk. But, you know, I was like 22. I was compounding my money. No, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense. And then did you ever go and work in sort of a more mainstream situation or have you always sort of been on, on your own doing uh, your own thing? I did about a half hour. Uh, my dad, so did his golf course, where I first told my dad I wanted to uh, be an investor. There was a guy, I think it was like a Morgan Stanley office or Merrill Lynch or something, and my dad drops me off before work at like 6.30, and the guy gives me like this giant list of uh, doctors. And you start with the A's, and you start calling them, yeah. and he's like, you're not licensed. If anyone picks up the phone and actually is willing to talk to you, make sure you give the phone to me. And he was like a couple other kids like my age, and I did it. I did, I did like four phone calls, and I'm like, nah, I'm done. Uh, yeah. And I, I just called a taxi and I went home. And my dad, he, see, he calls me. And he's like, the hell are you doing here? Like, like I, I had to pull favors at the country club to get you this. I'm like, dad, this isn't what I had in mind. Like, I'm not doing this. So you didn't see yourself as an emerging buddy fox then? <laughs> no, no. I, I wanted to take risk. It makes, a, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. So do you want to talk a little bit about the fund um, or how it started and, and, and you yeah, know, what sure. you're looking at now? And then we can maybe run through some, some macro themes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I was running my own money uh, quite successfully. And in uh, 2018, I got myself into, into trouble. I'm always getting myself into trouble. Uh, but I owned a very large uh, position for me personally and, a, and as a percentage of the shares of a company uh, where management was uh, selling assets off to their buddies for way less than they were worth. Mm -hmm. I mean, they actually paid uh, Sainsbury here in the U.K., uh, money to buy a profitable division off them, which had no liabilities. We still don't understand how these people are in prison. Uh, the, the CEO was actually a former uh, Sainsbury uh, senior executive. It, 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 somehow or another, something corrupt happened. Yeah. And I, I wanted to, uh, I realized there was a lot of asset value, but I didn't know how to crack the egg open. And we, we had this conference call with a bunch of uh, guys who own a lot of shares, and everyone's saying, it's like, we got to hire you know, lawyers. We need to sue these people. Oh, well, you know, we're a mutual fund. We're not allowed to sue. Oh, you know, I, I don't want to pay my pro rata share. I'm like, guys, guys this isn't going to work. It's, it's, like a, it's like a United Nations meeting. Yeah. There's 50 portfolio managers. Everyone has a plan. 
And I'm saying to myself, I'm, I can spend, you know, a half million, million dollars in legal fees, but everyone else benefits and I, I'm the one out the money. And, you know, just from a cost-benefit analysis, I didn't have enough shares to, to justify it. And what I did instead is this an odd provision in Canadian law that if you don't get 50% of the votes uh, at the annual meeting, you have to resign as, as a board member. Um, and uh, I just started calling every single shareholder, and I said, just vote against these assholes. Yep. And um, we, we, we actually got rid of two board members and the CEO. Uh, they didn't get enough votes. And uh, a friend of mine ended up in control of the company. And uh, within six weeks of getting control of the company, uh, their largest customer bid for the whole company at three times my cost basis. And it was an amazing investment for me, uh, personally. Uh, but it was very scary because there were moments in time where I yeah. thought they were going to steal every asset. And it just made me realize that if you're going to be an investor, you need some firepower. Uh, you need to be able to credibly threaten that you know, you're going to sue the guy, that you're going to run an activist campaign, that you can get the CEO fired. I couldn't even get the guy to get on the phone with me. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of realized that as, a, as an investor, you're, I mean, there's certain advantages to being small. You know, the situations you can't get into as you get larger. Uh, but there's, there's certain advantages to, of heft. And uh, you know, I, as my own personal uh, investment portfolio grew, I, I thought that heft would be more valuable to yeah. me. And it, it, you know, we haven't actually had to do anything activist. Well, we did one thing. But it's, I think it's proven better in terms of access. I mean, in the end, who picks up the phone when you call as a retail guy? I mean, people pick up the phone when you have a hedge fund. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a, makes a lot of sense. Um, and if we can move on to a bit of some maybe ma some macro themes, we all believe, or we can all see that the market is fixated on interest rates. We can talk about what the Fed can do next. But you've sort of written that you think the real kill shot will be a will be sort of the energy crisis or an energy energy issue. What do you mean by that? Well, I think it's almost inevitable that we have an energy crisis. Um, there's been you know, a year ago, everyone was freaked out about energy, and then some things happened that kind of pushed the, the crisis off. You know, China locked down for six months. Mm -hmm. Like, who would think the number two economy in the world just sits home and plays video games for six months? Like, that's not yeah. supposed to happen in your investment thesis. You know, you've had uh, just a bunch of one-off events. You know, it was an unusually uh, warm winter, which I think uh, really helped Europe. Uh, you had a bunch of, you know, the SPR. We, we've yes. drained 300 million barrels that's supposed to be used for an emergency. Uh, this, you know, isn't really an emergency, um, or not yet. Um, and I think we're going to have an energy crisis. I also think what's happening with rates is terrifying, where, you know, we have a world with a lot of leverage, especially the Western world, that's designed for a period of low rates. It's been low rates for 15 years. And suddenly rates are going up, and nothing's blown up yet. So everyone says, oh, this is fine. And I think stuff blows up. It just takes time for stuff to blow up. Yeah. You don't just say, oh, I'm bankrupt, whoops, send the keys back. You, you, you fight a little. And, you know, you, you have your own investors. If you're a bank, you can play games with your accounting. The regulators want to play games. I mean, politicians want to postpone mm -hmm. stuff. So no one ever shows up and says, hey, you're in trouble. Everyone says, don't worry about it, I got you. And so these things kind of go for a while, and then all of a sudden you have this crescendo. I think we're in the early stages of the crescendo, and rates keep going up, which means that a lot of people that are tied to interest rates, uh, financial things, private equity, venture capital, commercial real estate, they're in a world of pain. And I think it's going to get worse. Uh, but you also have uh, the trouble at the fiscal side because governments yeah. have to finance themselves. Uh, you know, if you look at the United States, um, the, the change in interest rates is an extra trillion dollars, you know, roughly, of interest expense each year. That's, that's more than we spend on our military each year. And so... 
you know, it, it, this dramatic increase, it's crowding out, you know, whatever, you know, other spending would do, but it's the government. Nothing ever actually gets crowded out. They just print more money and it, it, it leads to more inflation, which leads to interest rates uh, yep. going higher. And you have this kind of doom loop of chaos and stupidity. And I, I don't see politicians being willing to do the right things because politicians only exist to get reelected. And so you don't do the right thing until yeah. the voters say, hey, this really sucks. You have to do the right thing. And we're not that we're not nowhere near that. No, we near that. I don't think. I mean, I remember last summer, my mom was calling me up. Uh, Harris, can you believe the price of broccoli? It's like, mom, I've never bought broccoli in my life. You know, carrots have doubled in yeah. price. I'm like, okay, if you say so, mom. Like, my, my mom knows everything. Yeah. You know, but it's like when people like my mom start uh, getting into my, you know, like I don't get into my mom's lane. Like I, yeah. I don't know how broccoli works. Yeah. You know, like when, when she starts coming to my lane and starts talking about inflation, and we're sitting around dinner and she's complaining about inflation all day. It's like, okay, like it, it, it's gotten into people's conscience. And that's why, you know, Powell rapidly raised rates. You know, someone in the government tapped him on the shoulder and said, Cuppy's mom is starting to complain about inflation. You have to do something. And she hasn't talked about inflation in six months. But a, but a five-fold increase in rates in, in what, eight months, 12 months is, is just surely going to put the brakes on at some point. Has Sh- it? Well, I would imagine. I mean, I, I, I can't speak for, you know, Europe, but I can say the U.S. economy is doing just fine. I mean, jobs are plentiful. Everyone's getting a, a, a wage increase. I mean, I think people forget how much more powerful fiscal is than mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. monetary. We're running a 8% deficit. So, so what happens there? Because there'll be a point where the, the governments can't afford their own debt, surely. They just print the money. So, therefore, rates will have to come come down for them to do that, no? No, why can't they print money at higher rates? Okay. I okay. mean, what do you think the interest rate was in Weimar? They just kept printing the money. So, but therefore, inflation continues to be rampant. And as you say, we have this doom loop then. In a democracy, all roads lead to inflation. You know, we've had an unusual period of time for 20 years where inflation was subdued, mainly due to globalization, due to, you know, technological advancement like everyone yep. knows the deflation yeah. story yeah and everyone in government one day said you know balanced budgets are boring let's spend more and eventually they they spent enough money that they overwhelmed the deflationary forces and i think they're going to keep overwhelming it because when you run when you have you know over 100 percent debt to gdp it's really hard to claw it back i mean you, you can't the, the way you claw it back and you get things back normalized is either you have a, a period of very sharp inflation and you devalue your debt. Mm-hmm. We've seen countries like Israel do that. Uh, and then they had a, you know, a phenomenal boom after they did yeah. that. Or you um, have to grow your GDP. But you know, at least uh, the, the Western world doesn't like economic growth. Uh, they, they've been very much against economic growth just as a policy standpoint. And so if you can't grow your way out of it, you're going to slowly inflate your way out of it. Like I've seen countries do this, but it's an odd way to do it. But I guess going back to the other point, I mean, the economy is really strong. Mm. Like people forget, you know, like we're finance nerds, you know, we look at the GDP in the US and say, oh, it's going to be one or 2% this year. But you know, the average guy in the street, he's saying, wow, you know, we're we're running like 8% uh, nominal like uh, growth. The average guy in the street thinks in nominal, like you and I think in, you know, real. And the difference between nominal real, it, 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 historically has been 100 bips. So they're kind of the same yeah. for 20 years. Suddenly the spread blew out and nominal is just booming. Guys get raises in nominal. Yeah, yeah, Gu- yeah. Guys, uh, th- you know, their mortgage payment, that's still in nominal. Yeah. They get a raise, so yeah, they have a ton of debt. I mean, the American consumer is over-levered. But you know, that all deflates really fast. 
it's a 30-year mortgage. It's not like the U.S. government issuing, you know, T-bills. Like, <laughs> so it, it's okay for them. And a little bit of inflation is actually very good for the American consumer, especially because their home appreciates. They take out more equity. Yep. And life yep. goes on. And I suppose we had COVID in the middle of it, which sort of almost exacerbated that or, or, or ultimately... Governments had to just spend more money, so that that was the well. Governments don't have to do anything. Governments chose to spend a lot of money. Oh, that's true. That's true. But it was very popular to spend money, and well, it wins votes, I guess, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, in the U.S., I think a couple trillion of it they don't even know where it went. Like literally, just don't know. PPP, there's no. I think I think we're the same here as well, actually. I'm sure, and that money is still getting spent. That, that money is sitting in people's bank yeah. accounts. Yeah. And it, it's getting spent, and you know, I always like to say, you know. Like, I've been very successful in uh, investing, okay? If you gave me a million dollars right now and you put it in my uh, bank account, the only thing I know how to do is buy Q-SIPs. Yep. Uh, I, I can't tell you what I'm going to buy, but I'm going to buy more Q-SIPs. Everything I have, everything I want in the world, I already have. Yep. Like, I won't spend a dollar more. If you give your average guy a hundred bucks, he's going to take his wife out to dinner. Yeah. And then that restaurant, you know, is going to take that money and pay its employees. And those employees are going to go out for drinks after dinner. Like, it just it, it goes like this really yeah. fast. And that's what happens when fiscal happens. You know, monetary makes asset prices go up. Guys like me have more money, and we just buy more assets. Yeah. But when you do fiscal, it goes to the, you know, the middle class, and they spend that money. And that, that's why I think the economy is so strong, even though, you know, all the finance guys keep expecting the recession to hit. You know, every month, oh, next month's the recession. Where, when, <laughs> like, so, so, with that in mind, where, where would you see rates going to in the U.S. Then, I think the ten-year could be six percent by year end, and I think you could have a massive uh, train wreck of financial assets. I mean, why can't the stock market drop in half? I mean, if you, well, if you yeah, if, for sure. I mean, if the ten-year is six percent and you have to discount everything at eight percent or nine percent, yeah. like, I mean, asset prices are worth less. I mean, every bank's insolvent. Commercial real estate. Yeah. You know, these things were three caps. Now they're going to be 10 caps. Like, like everything's insolvent. Everyone's yep. insolvent. You, ha- you can have a giant fiscal crisis. So you can have a giant uh, financial sector crisis. And the average guy in the street. You won't th- touch him. Th- yeah. well, why would he care? He got yeah. a raise. He's going to yeah. get a raise next year. I mean, the real economy, when you look at real economy, look, we're having an aerospace boom. Yep. Think how many jobs go into aerospace. We're having an energy boom. Well, the, the, the number of drill rigs is up dramatically. Offshore is coming back. Like, you look at uh, infrastructure after crying about it. They're, they're doing infrastructure stuff. They're doing green energy stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. these are all like tons and tons of jobs. Yeah. The, the overall economy is just booming. And I think you have this weird dichotomy where the financial news, the business news, it's written by guys living in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And, and all their buddies got a bad bonus last year. Or no bonus. Or got fired. Yeah. And all their buddies own uh, high-end real estate. Yep. in the Hamptons that's not going up in price anymore. Yeah. All their buddies have a nanny and all the you know country club. Well, all those fees just went up. Yep. You know, the nanny wants twice as much. Yep. And so they're getting squeezed on the asset side. They don't really have income. They have asset. The asset side is getting squeezed. Their costs are getting squeezed. And they're saying, wow, it's a recession. No, it's a millionaire recession. That's it. Yeah. There's like 1% of the economy that's getting squeezed. The other guys are doing great. And these guys are like, this recession's terrible. And all the news says this recession's terrible. And you talk to a company, and they're like, we've never had it better. In 10 years, 20 years, I've been at this company. Our backlog's the biggest it's ever been. Our biggest problem is we can't find workers. Yep. And the workers are saying, wow, I was getting 25 bucks an hour. Now I'm getting 60. Like, everyone's winning, except for that 1%, because this nanny also wants a raise. Yeah. So then 
with with that idea, what macro themes are you playing? What how is the fun position? Do you feel well, to I just want to be long inflation. Yeah, like okay. in, in all its various ways. Uh, we're long uh, energy. Yeah, uh, I, I think you're going to have an energy crisis if you. So, so let's talk a little bit more about that. Is that because of the lack of investment for the last ten years in the yeah, sector? Yeah, absolutely. You you can't. It's not like a light bulb. You can't just flip a switch. It takes a very long period of time to design, engineer, and build a project. And we've lived on shale for a very long mm-hmm. period of time because it's more like a light bulb, but even that takes six months, nine months. And shale's kind of picked up the slack, but shale stopped growing a while ago. Or it's growing a little, but it's not growing enough anymore versus what global demand's doing and versus what uh, you know other assets have in, in their decline rates. We have to make new you know, projects that are five-year gestation sort of things. They're just starting now to start spending that money. And you're going to have a gap. I, th- I think uh, energy prices are going to scream. And, you know, I always say, and I've said this many times, but there's six billion people on this earth that want the same standard of living that I have. Absolutely right. And, and they should be allowed that as well. Oh, I believe so. Absolutely. But these guys, most of them don't have a toaster oven. Yeah. And I think that in 10 or 15 years, they're all going to be driving Priuses. And just think of how much energy consumption that is. Think how much consumption that is of every commodity. Yeah. And, no, I think you're going to have huge drivers of uh, demand for energy. And so, any other inflation plays? Um, I, I like real estate. I think real yeah. estate's going to do. I mean, state of Florida, at least. I own a lot of land in the yeah. state of Florida through through St. Joe. It's one of our largest possessions. Uh, I think I'm buying land at twenty cents the dollar of you know what what the fair market value is, and that land's appreciating very rapidly because people keep moving to Florida. It's a yep. beautiful state with low taxes, and as states go, it's one of the better run states. And then. I was looking at the U.S. construction sector, and shares that they have bounced quite aggressively over the last two to three months. Is that because the sort of chips and and construction tend to be quite early cycle, or is there a reason why U.S. U.S. sort of construction has been rebounding so strongly? I don't know if I can speak to construction, but I can say like in the housing sector, a lot of the, the housing components they've done just well. I mean, there's a five million unit shortage of houses in yeah. the U.S. versus population, if you just fit a trend line, you know, apartments, there's a shortage of everything. I mean, the population has grown and it keeps growing and the population's migrating. So you have some places where you have plenty of uh, you know, supply. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of places like Florida where, I mean, they need to build uh, tons of stuff it's just not, to catch up. It's not like they're building any more land, is it? <laughs> no, they're not. And I, I just think a lot of these sectors are going to stay very strong, which is why the economy is going to stay yeah. strong. I think people look at prior cycles and they say, oh, everything's tied to interest rates. And housing usually is tied to interest rates. But there's ways to fix interest rates. And you know, home developers know how to buy down mortgages where they can give people below market mortgages in exchange for them paying more for a home yes. now. Yeah. And so everyone figures out how to yeah. finagle yeah. through it. Yeah. I, I think uh, monetary has gotten way less... Um, got way less powerful uh, and I think people missed this uh, you know the average guy has a 30-year mortgage in their house in the United States so you raise interest rates you know they have a car with 60 do they, do they tend to be fixed or yeah, they, fixed. yeah. Uh, they, they have a car with you know 60 months 80 months left yeah. worst case you drive your old car if you don't like the the, the rates to finance it at yeah. everyone has some um, credit card debt but great that's gonna cost you a couple hundred yeah a couple hundred bucks more each month yeah. like interest rates don't touch me at all yeah like, they don't touch most people. They, they, what they touch is banks, you know, insurance companies, uh, venture capital, yeah, private equity. Yeah. And so you, you have a Wall Street cycle. And I think 
people got so focused on the Wall Street cycle that they forgot that, you know. There's an economy out there. Yeah, yeah, there's an economy out there. Yeah, yeah it's the economy stupid, exactly right. Uh, let's talk a bit about um, private equity because I would imagine they must be in quite a lot of pain with the, with the risk-free rates being so high. I mean, I think most of these uh, assets are insolvent. I mean, they bought these things at historically high uh, earnings multiples. Uh, I would assume the earnings are, in some cases, doing great, in other cases, suffering, just because of inflation. Yep. You know, uh, some some people win, some people lose. So that, call that a wash. But you know, you have to finance these things, and uh, a lot of them were able to get cheap debt early on. Exactly. But that stuff gets refinanced, and as they have to start refinancing these deals, and a lot of this is bridge debt, it's it's two three year paper, like. You're going to have to refinance at a much higher price. There's not enough cash flow. Your cash flow coverage is terrible at these businesses because you paid such high multiples to acquire them. I, I, I think, you know, a lot of the junior debt's going to be, uh, you know, written off. I mean, I'm amazed they have, uh, you know, private lending. I mean, I, I, I think trillions of dollars will just be, get vaporized in, tri- yeah. in private lending. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of these private equity firms, uh, it, it's kind of amazing because you get to market however you want to market and you get to just pretend like, oh, we're not impaired, you know. Yeah, like every unprofitable tech company uh, on the stock market is down ninety percent, but the venture capital guys are like, "No, we're up six percent this year." It's like, okay, like well, if you mark your own homework, it's quite easy, isn't it? Really? Right, right. And the, uh, I think the guys running the pension funds that are the ones who gave these guys yeah. the money, they're, they're still asleep at the wheel. They're just like, "Oh, I got my my quarterly statement." Right, and it they helps everyone. To, doesn't yeah. it? if they're up six percent, then yeah. it goes through the system, doesn't it? Yeah, so n- no one realizes that they, they, they've had a full impairment. Yeah. And I think they'll, they'll eventually, you know, these things with a, a lag, it'll, it'll show up. And I think a lot of people are going to lose a ton of money. And also, I guess, having had 20 years of very cheap money, it was all financial, financial management um, rather than actually operational management. And actually, if you're a private equity guy in your probably mid-30s, you probably never had to ha- put forward operational excellence and go in and change your business and run it. You've sat there and financially engineered it for the last 20 and it's still taking your carry and your return. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're just levered long uh, yeah. equity, and that's been a great place to be for 20 yeah. years. Sure, you know, there's been some sharp pullbacks, but it, because you can mark the model, pullbacks don't even show up in your book. Exactly, exactly right. And I think this one's going to last longer, but it's going to be a slow, grinding process as these firms all die. And yeah. I think it's going to be healthy for the markets if 90% of private equity gets vaporized and a bunch of pension fund managers, you know, become baristas. I, I think this is going to be good for the world. Yeah, I think that's a very fair comment. Now, let's maybe move the conversation to a topic which I know is very close to your heart, Guppy. Can we talk about uranium? <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a uranium bull. Uh, I, I think if they invented nuclear power today and they announced that they can take, you know, this coffee cup full of uranium and power, you know, a couple thousand homes... You know, we'd say, wow, this is the greatest technology ever. Yeah. And instead, you know, the world, for whatever reason, it ignored nuclear power for 40 years. You know, China hasn't. I mean, I think they're a bit smarter than us in many ways. They're just pushing ahead. And, yeah, there's been some accidents. And, you know, but there's been accidents with all sorts of uh, technologies. Yep. And I think as time goes on, you know, people learn from mistakes and the technology gets better. I think it's less likely to be accidents now. Um, and I think, you know, the world should shift to a lot more nuclear. I think what we're doing with solar is, is ridiculous. Uh, you know, the, the whole goal is to re- 
produce less carbon, but they just basically burn coal to create polysilicon. Yeah. And then they destroy the environment and you, you take, you know, big open field and you yeah. fill it with panels that last like a year or two and then they get destroyed by some event. It's like the, the wind turbines, the same thing. They're killing all the whales. Yeah. Like everything has a trade-off, okay? And you have to look at, you know, the, 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 you know, the pluses and minuses. And I think when it comes down to it, nuclear is the least bad option. I mean, of course, there's other things like hydro, but there's just not enough rivers in the world. Yes. You know, geothermal, yeah. there's not enough hot yeah, places. Yeah. Like, th there's other things that are probably yeah. better, but even they have trade-offs. And I think nuclear is going to be the direction people go. I mean, we've seen this uh, in the Western world in the last few years. You know, we've seen Michigan's turning a plant back on. They'd shut down. California agreed to keep Diablo Canyon. They looked at their options. They said, you know, well, what are we going to do? You know, France did an about phase. Uh, Germany hasn't quite yet. They've turned back on their coal power power stations, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, Germany <laughs> went back to coal power. <laughs> I mean, they're, this, they're the stupidest at all. Uh, I mean, they deserve to go back to the Stone Age. I mean, the Japanese actually had Fukushima, and they're turning theirs back on. Yeah. Like, everyone's kind of realized that it's the least bad option. I think you're going to see a resurgence of new development. I think the technology's gotten Especially better. Especially with these mini reactors, I feel Yes. Like. I think you're going to see, you know... Just a lot more development. There's going to be a lot more demand for uh, uranium. And But if you think back to it, you know, a, a uranium mine takes a couple years to build. Even if you take a shuttered mine, it takes a couple years to turn it back on. These uh, After Fukushima, there was too much uranium because the mines were still producing, mm -hmm. but they, they lost the customer. And there was a glut. And all, most of the uranium companies went out of business. Most of the mines in the world shut down. And guys who look at their supply and demand numbers and they looked at, you know, Germany, we're shutting down. France, we're shutting down. Everyone said, well, we have too many mines even now because you play it forward to 2030. Yeah. Well, now when you play it forward to 2030, which is like the realistic timeline to build a new mine, well, there's a huge shortage because these plants that were supposed to shut down didn't shut down. And then the Chinese built new ones and yeah. India is building new ones. And yeah. I think you have deficits right now. Let's call it this year about 30 million pounds uh, on about 185 million of demand. And next year, the number gets bigger. And uh, we do a lot of commodity investing mm -hmm. because supply and demand is really easy. Yeah. It's really obvious. And these things tend to overshoot. Uh, the price goes too low for a while. Everyone goes bankrupt. The price goes too high, and everyone builds new ones. And the cycle repeats. And it, it, it's so obvious, and I don't know why more people don't do it because it's so obvious. And so if, if the price is below the price to turn the new mines on, the existing mines on, well, then the price has to go up. It has to, and it usually overshoots dramatically on the way up. And in this case, we think it really overshoots because when you have most commodities, there's always something else you can use. So if the price goes too high, you use a little less of it, you use yep. something else that yep. sort of is <coughs> like it. Well, th there's no substitute for your you uranium. You can't re-engineer another fuel source quickly, can you? No, you have a $10 billion plant that was yeah. designed to use, you know, not just uh, you know, the specific uranium, the specific fuel rod, but I mean, it has to be the exact ratios and everything. Yeah. And so you have this $10 billion facility, you can't shut it off. And as a result, you're going to pay almost any price to get uranium. I think there'll be bidding wars and some power plants will have to go without. And you know, if, if you think and, of... And I guess no country, no government is going to want to stand there and not be the one fueling their power stations. Of course, but no CEO either. Yeah. I mean, your job is to go to regulators once a year and say, we want more money for the electricity we produce. And your only job is to not let the power go out. Yeah. Like your only job. You wear a suit. They pay you way too much. You go to a public hearing. It's a super easy job. Yeah. The only rule is you can't let the power go out because my mom's going to call and complain, just, exactly. like, just like the broccoli. Exactly right. And, exactly. 
you know, it, it's just these guys can't let it go out. And part of not letting it go out is you never want to let your uranium, uh, you know, go down to zero, you know, so that it could go out. Most nuclear power plants keep uh, three to five years of, uh, like, reserves, like yeah. backup. Yeah. And that, that number is below the lower end. We're around uh, twos right now. So it's it, it kind of an interesting thing. Because when you think of a commodity, you figure you use, you use a pound, you buy a pound. You use a pound, you buy. That's how yeah. the world normally works. Yeah. Nuclear is different because you have to turn uranium into hexafluoride. It has to be enriched. It has to turn into a fuel rod. There's many steps. And so you're going to want to do a whole lot of it at once, and then you stop for a while. A whole lot of it at once, you stop. So guys uh, should have been doing a whole lot of it, so they keep it that three to five. But that stuff's expensive. And, you know, if you spend money, it goes against your stock options. Yeah. So. The, the natural incentive was to do less of it and report more earnings. And so over a couple of years, people drew down their inventory, and now global inventory is a few hundred million pounds below where they need to be. So not only do you have this like 30, 35 million deficit this year, uh, at some point, these uh, utility CEOs are going to look at the same numbers I'm looking at, and they say, wow, we got to reorder. And they're going to take it back up to three to five, which means you have hundreds of millions more pounds. Yeah. And I think it's just going to overshoot, and overshoot in a very dramatic way. And I think owning physical uranium is one of the lowest risk, uh, best option trades. You know, the price, I bought mine was about 31 a just, pound. Just don't take, tick the physical delivery box. <laughs> well, there's, there's an ETF you can buy. You don't have to think about it. Uh, and, but I bought mine was about 31 a pound. It's about yeah. uh, 56 a pound yeah. now. And I think it goes to a couple hundred pound. And, you know, like I said, I want to be long inflation. Well, I'm long inflation. It's a hard asset. It's great. Yeah. And then if you look at some of these collectives or physical physical ownership structures such as Sprott or Yellowcake, what, what's the end game for them? Are we going to wake up one morning and all of a sudden their uranium is, is there on offer and you know, it begins to... No, they never sell. E even if it does hit $100 or, or more? No, no, because I mean, these entities exist to earn fees for the sponsors. If you sell, you have less fees. No, they're, they're not going to sell. So you think they'll just carry on holding holding their book, as it were? No, that, that's the, that's, that's the, the mandate of the entity. I, right. think what, I think what we've learned is that these entities sometimes trade at a premium and they issue more shares, yep. which actually accelerates the deficits. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so bullish. It's very reflexive. But sometimes they trade at discounts to NAV, mm -hmm. and recently the discounts have been wider than normal. I think these entities need to be reimagined by the sponsors, and you know we've had conversations with the sponsors. Uh, I think we're going to be a, a lot more aggressive in these conversations mm -hmm. if they don't do it themselves. But they, they need to be reimagined, and I think there needs to be some changes to how the structures work so that they um, can trade at a tighter uh, range around uh, net asset value. Because in the end, investors want to own NAV. They want to own you know that, that $56 a pound, give or yeah. take you know a bit. Like they, they, they don't want to own, you know, 15% discount. Like, that, who yep. wants that? Yep. And so I, I think the sponsors recognize this because, remember, their incentive is to issue shares, buy pounds, earn fees. And you can't do that thing that they get bonuses to do mm -hmm. if it's at a discount. So we're all on the same team here. Yeah. I think they haven't felt enough urgency to fix the problem. But I, I, I do believe the problem will get fixed. And then what sort of timeline do you see for your uranium hitting hundred bucks. Oh, I think it's going to be pretty imminent. Uh, but you know, you have this odd thing. If you asked me last year, I said it's pretty soon. Yeah. And the damnest thing happened. The utility executives said, eh, "Let's keep drawing down our yeah. inventory." We we'll rolled it for a year. Yeah. You know, uranium bottomed at twenty bucks a pound. It, you know, it's it's up into the fifties. Well, we'll wait for the pullback. 
You know, we still got two and a half years left. Like, yeah. at two years, we'll panic. Yeah. And that's what happened, you know? Yeah. And they just started now to do the contracting cycle. And then let's have a little bit of a conversation about crypto and Bitcoin, only because I think it's quite interesting. And what's your, you know, is it, a, is it an asset class that you look at? I mean, we watch it, you know, watch it very closely. Um, I think it's, you know, one of the purest barometers of uh, speculative greed and yes. idiocy. Um, yeah. I, I understand the, the, the reasons why I think every person would want to own some uh, crypto. I own some crypto. Um, I understand why you'd want it. You want to diversify your wealth, and it's a diversifier these days. It's a liquid asset that, you know, is volatile. It's, it's, it's fun to play with. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I don't really understand, you know, the, the purpose in a way. Um, though I've traded it very well, and, you know, it's been very good to me. Yeah, uh, the use case is still very shaky, I think. There is no use case. Exactly. It's, it's, it's portable wealth. Uh, in many ways, you know, I, I think gold is probably better. Mm -hmm. But you can't walk down the street with a million dollars of gold. You're going to get mugged, and it's very heavy it's anyway. Very heavy. Yes. Very heavy. And it's not divisible very easily. Like, yeah. what do you do with a coin? Like, there's only so many things in the world that cost $2,000. I mean, as an aside, if you're really bored, we, we're next to the Bank of England here, and there's a Bank of England Museum. And in the Bank of England Museum, they have a gold bar, which you can actually put your hand through and lift up. I mean, it's in, it, A, it gives you good luck, I'm sure, but B, also, it's incredibly heavy, that gold bar. Oh, yeah, I bet. And, no, so, look, I think gold is really good, I think. Bitcoin, I guess, has, sort of has a use. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I don't think now is the right time to buy Bitcoin. This yeah. looks a lot more like an echo rally to me uh, off the prior high. Uh, you know, if, if the Fed's raising rates, uh, you, you want to own things with cash flow. Yes. When the Fed yeah. is flooding the world with liquidity, you want to own speculative things like yeah. uh, crypto. I think it's the wrong part of the cycle. For no, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Very interesting to see that Bitcoin and, and Rolex now have a correlation of one, actually. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> and then, I mean, anything else that, that springs to mind that you'd like to like to mention? I just really worry bonds. I mean, the 10-year in the U.S. broke out last week. Yeah. Um, it was always, you know, a speculation on my side that this cycle would be different, just because everything else about this cycle has been different. And historically in the United States, we have this uh, unique privilege that when we have a financial crisis or any economic crisis, interest rates decline, and it, it soothes the crisis. Mm -hmm. Versus, say, Brazil or Turkey, when they have a financial crisis, the GDP slows down, which means that the fiscal revenue from taxing slows down, which means the deficits expand, which means inflation expands, which means the currency depreciates, which means inflation expands, which means interest rates go up, and it basically ex accentuates yeah. the crisis. So yeah. we have this countercyclical thing going on, and it's just this unique privilege because we're America. And everyone else has to, like, deal with the drudgery of a recession, which becomes yeah. a depression. And I tend to think the U.S. is acting a lot more like an emerging market than a developed market. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we, have, we have all the attributes, whether it's, you know, the, the, the fiscal deficits, uh, you know, the, the large debts, the, the money printing from a political standpoint. I mean, I, I don't care if you like or you don't like Trump. I mean, there's been a lot of bad presidents. They didn't get a, you know, indicted and arrested. Yeah. Uh, I mean, th that, that's stuff they do in Africa. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. like we act like an African country. Yeah. Well, you have African country effects uh, in, in your monetary system then. And I just tend to think this cycle w will look more like an emerging market. But it's always been something I've just held in my head and not really said too often because 
everyone says Cuppy, like the last 10 times he did this, why, why is this one special? Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of guys who've been buying bonds waiting for this recession that never comes. And when interest rates broke out last week, suddenly I started saying, you know, maybe I am going to be right about this. And we should be playing with uh, EM rules instead of mm-hmm. DM rules, which means you throw out your entire playbook and you start again. And, you know, crises happen when uh, – crises don't happen when everyone's talking about the crisis. Yeah. So when everyone is talking about the recession that's coming, it doesn't come. If no one's talking about uh, – crises come when no one expects something and it just comes out of the blue – well, if we have a, an EM crisis here in uh, the Western world, no one's ready for that. Everyone's ready for another deflationary cycle. And I think you could have some massive fireworks if uh, interest rates actually start trending. And historically, rates, they trend for long periods of time. And what I think people thought was uh, a reversal pattern to lower rates, yeah. it looks like a consolidation to more. Well, well, higher rates, yeah. Right, and I think a lot of people have deceived themselves by looking at uh, the rates curve because yep. it's, ha- it's had predictive you know, ability in the past. But the rates curve is sort of a fake curve in a way because you have all these entities that have a mandate to own the long end of the curve because they need duration. But look at what the U.S. Treasury does. We yes. just keep issuing T-bills. Yeah. So you have this part of the curve that has no supply and a lot of demand, which is, yeah, that great. That's, it's, it's inverted. I mean, yeah. but if Yellen starts looking at this and this, she says... I get 4% here, but it's fives there. Yeah. Well, let's sell some more of this product. Yeah. And suddenly there's not a shortage of 10-year and not a shortage of 30-year. I mean, they should be, she should be going out and getting duration. Well, then the curve is going to do what the curve is supposed to do. And I think a lot of people have deceived themselves into this artificial curve that uh, everyone fights last uh, war, every mm-hmm. general. And that's, that's why all these guys need to lose money every cycle. <laughs> yeah. I think something really nasty is coming. And I've been the Project Zimbabwe guy that thought – you know, straight up, everything goes straight up. But people forget that when you look at uh, Weimar or, or Zimbabwe, there were nasty 50, yes. 70% pullbacks. Yeah. I think we're still in one of those pullbacks that, 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 that started at the end of 21. And I think we're, we're about to have the scary part. So maybe that, that, that's a happy note to leave it on. Yeah, I mean, that's a great happy note to leave it on. But I mean, very insightful. I like to end with three questions, Cuppy. So if you don't mind. Um, and again, you may not have an answer to these, but let's see. Let's see how we go. Your greatest inspiration or mentor? I've never really had a, a mentor, so I, I think I'm going to So it wasn't the guy at Morgan Stanley then who asked you to phone the doctors? <laughs> the guy who uh, I cleaned pools for that summer, he was a sh- smart guy because uh, he realized he could pay me six bucks an hour cash. Yeah, and you did all the work. I did all the work, and he slept with the, cleaning, with the, yeah, the housekeeper. Yeah, yeah. And, all, you know, we, we were in a wealthy part of uh, New York, and they, this is right after the wall came down. You had all these, like, 22-year-old Eastern European girls, and, you know, they, they were the nannies. He just slept with all the nannies right. while I was doing all the work. And, and recurring revenue at the same time. <laughs> yeah, monthly, yeah. monthly recurring revenue. I, I'm sure there's a nice fat spread between what he <laughs> was getting paid and what he paid me. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, a book that's inspired you. I'm just rereading uh, the, the, the Cornelius Vanderbilt book. Uh, you know, he, he was a shipping titan and then a railroad titan. Uh, th- that's what you do when you take, you know, eight-hour plane rides. Yeah. And it's, I think it's probably the third or fourth time I read it. It's just amazing what this guy did. He had, you know, really no education. It's just a lot of uh, wits, determination, and just kind of drive, pushed forward, you know, buried all of his opponents, you know, in, in a time where, you know, Things didn't have the same rule book they have today. Yeah. You know, he had yeah. some sharp elbows. But yeah. I'd say he was probably less sharp than most guys. 
But he also invented a lot of things we take for granted in the world, a lot of the financial institutions and products that he had to invent the things. It, it, it's truly amazing what he built with effectively no education. It's, it's, it's an amazing guy. Excellent. And then what's the best piece of advice someone's given to you? <laughs> if, 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 if anyone agrees with you, uh, you're probably wrong. You know, <laughs> you want to be at a moment in time where they're all laughing at you because then you know you're right. Yeah. Yeah, just it might take a bit of time for them to realize that, I guess. But yeah, they always come around to it eventually. Yeah. Th th there's some diehards that just refuse to, but I tend to find that most of the time on my big decisions, they laugh at me, then they get mad at me, then they kind of pity me a bit. They're like, Cup, you're going to lose all your money. And then they're like, huh. It's the, five, it's the five stages of grief, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, it's five stages of contrarianism. Yeah. But then, you know, about one in 10 times, you know, the mob really is right, and I'm yeah. the idiot. And yeah. that's the problem with being contrarian because yeah, you're so used to everyone telling you that. But 90% being right is not a bad, not a bad um, no, pass it's, mark, is it? Look, I've been very successful at this game. It's been yeah. good. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah, the game needs more people like you, for sure. Um, how <laughs> I don't can, know about that. How can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, you can reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at, at hcuppy. Uh, I'm sure I'll offend you at, at some point if I haven't already. Otherwise, you can subscribe to uh, my blog at uh, praycap.com, and it, it'll be Cuppy's Corner on, on our website. And, you know, we, we publish whenever I feel like uh, having something to say. Magic. Cuppy, this has been epic. Thanks so much. And I hey, hope, thanks uh, for having me. I hope you enjoy your trip in London. I'm sure I'm going to enjoy it. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.